Hey everyone, before we get started, a few announcements. So I'm going to be holding more conversations uh, on Clubhouse. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that I've started to do that recently. And uh, last episode, episode 29, is actually just a recording of one of those live conversations we had on Clubhouse. It was with John Shell and Delilah Rothenberg about wealth inequality. I'm actually speaking to Joy Anderson, today's guest, uh, about having a conversation on gender lens investing uh, there. So uh, if you want to join the conversation, it we'd love to have you participate. Clubhouse is a new social audio um, mobile app. It's available on iOS and excitingly now available on Android. So if you've been left out of the um, conversation till now because of the uh, platform, uh, mobile platform you're using, you can now get on. Uh, it is still invite only though. So if you need an invitation to the app, please email me at dave at davidoleary.ca and send me your name and, and mobile number. I need the mobile number to send you the invite. And I'd be happy to do that. And also just a heads up, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not subscribed to the newsletter, I share lots of resources every week or two, like including when new episodes come out, but also event invitations and um, new uh, thought leadership pieces that have been published, interesting articles I'm reading, all kind of resources aimed to help you get smarter about impact investing. So uh, visit impactinvesting.how and uh, you can sign up very easily there. I send emails maybe once or once every week or, or every couple of weeks. So you won't get inundated with, with emails and it's all just free resources. And lastly, I want to thank a bunch of thank yous. So thank you to Tim and Kiki Lomo who wrote to me not too long ago to share some ways in which the podcast has been, you know, a positive impact on them. And both of you, that means the world to me to hear from, from, from you and anyone whose life has been positively impacted by this podcast that, the whole reason I run the podcast. So it's a, you know, just hugely gratifying. Um, and thank you, a huge, huge thank you to Cadge Jab and Ethan from North Carolina for the recent five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I, I uh, talk about the, you know, the best way you can thank me is to, is to leave a review. And, and please, and write to me as well. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, but the reviews really help us reach a, a wider audience. So thank you to both of you. Also, just a heads up, there's a really interesting video chat happening on Monday, May 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern. It's being hosted by Delilah Rothenberg of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. And it's a conversation with Karen Petru, uh, who will discuss her new book, The Engine of Inequality, The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. And so the conversation explores the unintended negative consequences of the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, policies and how they can increase systemic risks such as inequality and systemic risks for investors and the markets. So be sure to uh, check that out. And I've put a link in the show notes if you want to attend that event. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit.
Welcome to episode 29 of the Impact Investing Podcast. If impact investing requires us to address systemic inequalities, and it does, then you can't claim to be an impact investor and ignore gender equality. Consider that women, girls, and gender diverse people represent half of the Earth's population, and that in virtually every culture across the globe, for all of human history, they have been systematically oppressed. That's why I've been particularly excited to have this episode, especially with this guest. In this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Joy Anderson, a true OG of Gender Lens Investing and the founder and president of Criterion Institute. Criterion Institute is a nonprofit think tank that works with social change makers to demystify finance and broaden people's perspectives on how to engage with and shift financial systems. The core of the mission at Criterion Institute is to expand the demographic of those who see themselves as able to use finance as a tool for social change. This is achieved by providing resources such as blueprints and toolkits to bring people to the table who normally would not feel welcome in. Criterion Institute challenges the structural inequities that create barriers in the finance world, especially as it pertains to women. Joy's interest in social change and systems of power were formulated through her experiences in academia during her undergraduate studies and in her work as a high school teacher in the New York public school system. Joy has since worked in finance for 20 years and was listed in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business in 2011. And in founding Good Capital, alongside Timothy Frindlick and Kevin Jones, Joy has experienced firsthand the opportunities and challenges involved in impact investing. And what I love about Joy, besides her wealth of knowledge and commitment to the cause, is her no-nonsense attitude. In a world full of people and organizations using impact investing as a marketing hook, Joy spends all her time thinking deeply about gender inequality, challenging the patriarchal establishment, and producing a wealth of resources that can help drive real-world change. During this episode, Joy and I discuss how highly complex jargon creates barriers in the finance industry, the importance of understanding context when moving money to create social good, and the link between increased political risk and investments and rates of gender-based violence. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Joy addresses the problem of keeping the finance field binary and the cultural shift she hopes to see in the future. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Joy. So Joy, welcome to the podcast. Hello, David. Thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm trying to remember when we first met, but uh, the last time I remember seeing you, I think we shared a cab back from uh, a conference in Ottawa. I'm not sure if you remember that. And I was picking your brain. (laughs) Yeah, it was the CCIC thing, right? The... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it was. Because, oh, actually, uh, that reminds me because I have the, um, you had, a, we're going to actually talk about it in the podcast, but you had a, a toolkit you gave out. I'm just reaching for it. That's why the, my mic went quiet. The toolkit for finance as a strategy for social change. And I have it with me here. I'm actually referencing in the podcast, but I remember I didn't get to actually attend your workshop that you had there because I was running a separate one that day. And I was really bummed that I didn't get to join for it, but I took one of the toolkits. <laughs> cool. Cool. That was a fun day. Yeah. Joy, can you introduce yourself to everybody who's listening who may not have uh, come across your work yet? Sure. So I am Joy Anderson. I lead Criterion Institute and have for about 20 years since I founded it. Um, best known for the role I played in starting the field of gender lens investing and 
the work we do now, but my sort of, I've always worked on social change and systems of power and how do we create social change? And my focus is how do you create social change using finance? Awesome. So a couple things. This was a fun fact I came across as I was just brushing up a little before the podcast, but Fast Company named you in 2011, one of the country's most cre- most creative people. Yeah, that and a subway yeah. token gets you right on the subway. No, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's that's actually, like- it was, it's one of those things that actually went to spam, teaches you to actually check your spam. And so I would have actually not known that I had won the award if I hadn't checked my spam. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. How's that even possible that they'd awarded you without you knowing? They know oh, it, nobody they, like, messaged they, you to say, hey. You don't apply for it. It's it's one of those. They just call you and say, we think you are one of the most blah, blah. Which is but, even more, which is even cooler. Yeah. Anyway, I thought it was cool. And to you tell me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like there's like a handful of OGs in the gender lens space that I'm familiar with anyway. But And I know... Like Susan uh, Beagle, for instance, is like another one who's just been doing this from a long time ago. And it just I'm feels like there's about all of the things that an OG could stand for. I'm up with, like, oh, like an original gangster. Like, like you're from like... the. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just like one of the originals, like from oh. like very early days. Yeah. It's absolutely. like original gangster, right? <laughs> oh, original gangster. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, I, that's way better than the grandmother shit that I get sometimes. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is much cooler. <laughs> the original gangster. Yeah, me and Jackie Vanderbrug and Suzanne Beagle were, were it in the early days and coined the phrase yeah. gender lens investing, all those kinds of fun things. No, super yeah, it's really cool. Super cool. I love it. So can you like your background actually well tell us number one, what tell us a little more about Criterion Institute. What's the mission? What type of work do you guys do? So we're a think tank in the full sense of the word, a nonprofit think tank and so we spend a lot of time thinking. But what's cool is it, we're um, trying to think about how to explain this easiest. But why do I keep saying we're a think tank? Because part of it is I, I've launched venture funds and played all kinds of different roles and had 85 different business models for how do you do systems level change. And for the last six years, really been focused on on where is the space that's separate from the people who have the enormous pressure on doing where we can be pushing? And so we have an enormous privilege to sit where we do and push the imagination, challenge things. And so we, our core mission though is not just for us to get to do that. Our core mission is about expanding who sees themselves as able to use finance as a tool for social change. And so in in general, I think one of the core problems with impact investing is that a significant portion of the people who work on impact investing don't actually have a ton of background in social change, honestly. Like it was, there's so much about impact investing and, and then gender lens investing as well that privileged knowledge about finance over knowledge about context, which means that we end up with a bunch of people who are wicked smart about finance, but not so much like the world. And 
the sort of assumption behind Criterion is that to be able to address, for, for, to have the kind of goals that we want from innovative finance, impact investing, sustainable finance, whatever you want to call it, to have the kind of goals that we want, to achieve the kind of goals that we want, we, we just have to change who we're listening to, whose expertise matters. We have to address power dynamics. And so our role within that is is to really push the imagination, but also push the imagination of change makers. If we're not getting people, if we're not getting the people who don't currently work in finance (laughs) at the table, then we'll just keep reimagining things through the eyes of the people who already know finance. So that's our mission. Yeah, I love that. Because I think it is, I think it's, I think everything you say is bang on. And I come from the traditional investment management world and, and it's great. They bring folks like us bring a certain perspective, but it is certainly only one. And I would argue probably the smaller part of the equation or the easier part of the equation when it comes to impact investing, the impact, the social or environmental change is the harder part and it's social in particular. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole, but social is certainly a very difficult thing when you're dealing with people. It's we're highly complex and you can have kind of the best of intentions to make positive impact. And, And as you start to get into the more I've ever dug into, for instance, international development and alleviating poverty as an example of the, an area where I spent a fair bit of time, it's the more you dig into it when you're from the outside, you might've said, oh, why don't they just do this? And that's so crazy. What, why don't you just do that? And then you get into it and you understand the issues. You realize, oh, wow, this is just way more complex than I ever imagined. And yeah. it's really hard. That's why these problems persist. Yeah, yeah, No, and I think that just building on that point, I think there's two things that play into that. One is the early story of impact investing. So I, I founded one of the early venture funds with Kevin Jones and Tim like good capital so I was, good was, capital journey? yeah good capital so i was yeah. i was part of the early days of impact investing and there was a wow there was a healthy dose of arrogance of faster better these silly social change people haven't really pulled it together and so we'll be able to really jumpstart this and mm-hmm. that that was not productive in a lot of ways Men in finance were arrogant? What? I know. And you had that with, it was Silicon Alley finance people. It wasn't just, there's a bunch of humble finance people. You find drones in the bottom of a bank. They're not usually really arrogant, but like venture capital really rocks the arrogance front. And (laughs) because that was so much driving it, that was, that was a first piece. And I had a second point, but I totally forgot it. Anyway, carry on. So good capital is is what also what I wanted to ask you about. Do you is it do you still run it? No, I own a small piece of it, and it's been very small. I exited as a I, I exited as a core partner maybe four or five years ago, six years ago. Okay, wow. okay, I figured as much. So maybe I'd love to hear a little bit more about. You've got a really interesting background and journey. And I say that a lot on this podcast because I feel like a lot of the people that I speak to here really do. And I love that a lot of them don't come from a boring background like mine. <laughs> like your background is like you spent the first decade of your career teaching, right? 
Yep. High school in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, like history degrees. Yeah. At the same time, I have a PhD in 19th century American history. So, right, which is maybe not like I've got to be at, like an undergraduate in English literature, which is not maybe a common <laughs> sort of a, or most promising degree for somebody who wants to go into in the investment world. But anyway, tell us about that journey. Like, how did you, where did you start and how did you get into this world? I would say two things about my 20s as I'm now into my mid fifties, like twenties seem like a long time ago, but, but in my twenties, I, two things that really grounded me in, in that experience. One was I worked in New York city public schools, which is a very large system. And I actually went there from my undergrad, went directly from my undergrad, didn't have a master's in teaching. And it was at a time before teach for America where you could still it was before Teach for America, but you, you could definitely get a job. There was a lot of shortages. <laughs> so I, I just like slid in coming from an elite college, but stayed because most people don't stay as long as I stayed. Teaching often is an entry-level job that people jump other places, especially with things like Teach for America now. But I, I stayed for about eight or nine years and I loved the kids. I thought they were fascinating. But I also went to really look at how power works in big systems. That's what I wanted. I came from a government undergrad, and, and I really wanted to understand power, which has been the question of my whole career, of who has power and why, and what enables them to exercise the power that they have. And so studying that, I did a lot of union organizing and in Brooklyn, went through three strike votes and did a bunch of other stuff. I ran a grant program in my school. And, but I worked in a school that had 5,000 students. So it was also not a backwater, like a massive institution yeah. in and of itself. And the, I would say the second thing is studying history. I don't know, people have probably, if anybody's heard me give speeches, I say this a lot. I'm, as a historian, I can tell you the date we made this shit up. And there's a kind of sense of, as a historian, there's a healthy perspective in not assuming that everything has always been this way. That's what you learn as a historian of how to look at, I looked at prison reform in the 1830s as my dissertation topic. And what, what it enables you to do is look at a period that's a long time ago and not take your kind of current understanding of how the world works and just say, that must have been how it worked in the 1830s. And I think that's a really healthy thing to bring to finance. Because in, in general, finance is a pretty innovative field. There's been lots of studies of how quickly finance as a discipline shifts. And yet, we... We talk about everything that's happening now, or many of the things, as if they've always been that way. And and I find that fascinating, right? There's a kind of, oh, sweetie, that's not how it works. I'm like, dude, it's worked that way for like three years. Like, that's you can't just tell me that's not how it works. Like, you just made up that new instrument, and everybody <laughs> implements it differently. So For all of human history, it has not worked that way until this past three years with <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like you think about derivatives, 
we've always had derivatives. We've always had this sort of general idea that things valued from a distance and you could, you know, roll thing into bundles, but you haven't always had derivatives. Like they're a relatively recent invention. And that kind of healthy sense. I remember early on in Good Capital, I was had a couple of MBAs working for me at Criterion and I ended up on a good capital call. And I, I really, I was trying to be so diligent. I was trying to really understand all these terms and how they worked. And, and I was like, I just don't understand this. It's just, there's no thing in Investopedia that you can look up that explains this term sheet that I'm reviewing. And I got on the call and one of the you know, sort of traditional VCs who was on our investment committee was like, wow, this is really innovative. We've never done anything like this before. I'm like, damn, like, why did I spend all that time looking this shit up? Why don't you just tell me those? This has no reference in previous history. But I, but I work in, I think, as a, so my kind of, I, th- I think I have a, I, I've been working in finance now for 20 years, but I, I still feel like I have a bit of a beginner's mind of being able to say, with healthy, with a sort of healthy sense of, I don't want to say, it's not that I don't respect the rules of finance. I actually think finance is is brilliant. Like I, I, I think it's elegant. I'm fascinated by it, but I just don't take it that seriously. Mm. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. We just, we definitely need people to question it, especially just given the, that it does represent such a, narrow range of perspectives, right? It is a very, it lacks a lot of diversity. And, uh, and so we need more people from various backgrounds to come in and ask these types of questions. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I've played a personal role in selecting this sponsor, because they're passionately working on making an impact. Today, we're going behind the scenes with a British Columbia based social enterprise called Genies. I can tell you firsthand, when we came to Israel as a family of five, no jobs, of course, a different language from Russian to Hebrew, small kids, I was four. The first night that we got in, a neighbor saw that a family came in and she basically gave us like tea with some sweets, things that she had prepared. And these moments created so much joy and stress relief for my mom specifically, where she could, okay. Somebody helped me feed my kids in a moment where I was really stressed about how do I do that. That's Libby Berenson, co-founder and CEO of Genies, describing the difficult experience her family had moving from Russia to Israel when she was a child. And it was experiences like this that would spark the passion in Libby to create a social enterprise in the business of granting wishes for families in need. Always giving back to the community was a part of me. So creating Genies was really a way for me to apply my skills and experiences into combining that with my values and things that I'm passionate about. The trick, though, for Libby was to find a way to enable caring Canadians to grant wishes in a way that was financially sustainable, scalable, and secure. In Libby's words, Genies is basically a social gifting technology platform that facilitates gifting for families in need. We integrate with different retailers to be able to 
show their products and services in the app for families to list and donors to give. Families can list different types of items. They can list products, secondhand products, electronic gift cards for groceries, and even dental services. And services can be later on, it can be eyewear, it can be in the future education, career coaching, it could be different other services that we can really grow with that side. We're working with nonprofit organizations. They're the ones vetting and choosing these families. Families want to receive anonymously. Remaining anonymous is super, super important. The impact on the lives of real people, real families, sometimes those living on our own streets and in our own communities, can be transformational. Libby recalls the story of a woman who was used to wearing secondhand coats that never quite fit right, who got to enjoy a privilege that many of us never think twice about. She received a new coat. And so she received that coat that she really wanted from a donor on Genie's. She was so proud of it. Her confidence went so high and up. And that was a little bit before COVID. So people could meet face to face. So for her, it was such an important part of her confidence and self-esteem. She was so proud and showing off her new code. Imagine the opportunity and how she will feel when she goes and, and, and tries for a job interview or in front of her kids or her friends. She felt so proud and that. With the platform built and the idea validated, Libby and her team now spend their time and focus on growing the business. Genies uses an affiliate business model where retailers pay Genies for each product or service that are gifted to families in need. This revenue allows Genies to expand their relationship with more nonprofits to reach more families in need. But to accelerate this growth, Genies needs to raise additional financing. We chose equity crowdfunding because of the opportunity to engage the community. You need to have the funding behind it to make sure that your, your impact is seen and uh, it's affecting more and more people. Crowdfunding helps democratize access to impact investing. In the case of Genies, it allows them to accept an investment as small as $250 without requiring investors be accredited, a restriction that normally prevents ordinary Canadians from becoming co-owners of impact businesses and participating in their financial success. You can invest a minimum of $250 up to $1 million, and investors in BC are actually eligible for even 30% tax credit with an investment of over $3,000. Visit frontfunder.com genies to learn more about how you can be a part of this impactful process of social gifting. That's frontfunder, F-R-O-N-T, F-U-N-D-R dot com slash G-E-E-N-E-E-S. One of the, the most recent episodes I, I published was was a chat with Jed Emerson, who's talking about the same types of things as we don't, we, we value in society people with the answers rather than people with good questions. And yeah. anyway, I think we need, a, I think we need more of that. And I love to me, what, what sort of stands out about you and the, there's a variety of things, but one of them is just like this idea that you're not afraid to be really vocal and question the status quo and also just like act as a, hey, this stuff's not rocket science. And like, how do we get more people involved and in asking questions and feeling comfortable and like removing this sense of, oh, this is such a august field and I can't participate in it because I'm a lowly social worker, I'm a lowly teacher or whatever it is. And it's just, it's not like we build this, 
the industry itself uses jargon almost as a way to make it feel intimidating and highly complex. And a lot of the people, there's some really smart people in finance, but there's some idiots too, just like any field. It's got a fair share of idiots. (laughs) It's got a significant, as one of the most powerful systems on the planet, it, it, it has a significant amount of power. So what it says is important, what it says is valuable, what systems of finance decree to be. And what I focus on a lot these days is what finance thinks is the future holds a lot of sway and just being aware of that privilege and the bias that that sits right alongside it is you know it's it's incredibly important that we question these assumptions and it's one of the reasons that I I don't we're we're, it's one of the reasons back to the why we're a think tank right because we're an disinterested party. I don't have a, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't have a fund that I'm trying to rationalize as the next gift to the planet. I can sort of stand separate from it and say, huh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Maybe we could also try this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So just to finish the kind of the, the journey, how did you move from teaching into becoming a, um, getting into, I think you've spent some time as a consultant and then founded yeah. Criterion, was it early 2000s? Yep, early 2000s, founded Criterion, 98. I transitioned to a consulting firm and it was right before Y2K. And so I landed in this consulting firm in Milwaukee, hired as a glorified grant writer because I'd run multi-billion dollar grants in New York City and but the first client they landed was the Methodist Pension Fund, the what is now Westpath. And so I got put on that contract. And so I actually literally went from being a classroom teacher in June to being on a team advising a pension fund in August. And it was, uh, Westpath is one of the leaders in social responsible investing one of the biggest portfolios in low-income housing. And and we were there to look at Y2K and some consulting firm before us had done a number on their system. And I think you know this about me, but I've grown up in the church. And so being able to work in the Methodist Pension Fund, I, I understood systems of the church in some of the ways that the large consulting firm that preceded us had gone wrong. But then just got hmm. up fascinated by by what was going on looking at the assets, they had about $14 billion under management. So it wasn't a huge pension fund, but it was not the smallest of the faith-based pension funds. And and just got to see a different angle. I've been in New York City public schools and had looked at large budgets and thinking about how money moved within school systems and then looking at systems of capital just fascinated me. So it was about the same time that microfinance was really starting and actually somebody at the Methodist Pension Fund, this is how, I don't know, I feel like half my life has been done based on a dare, but somebody at the <laughs> pension fund said, what would it, we have a billion dollars in low-income housing. What would it look like to have a billion dollars in microfinance? And in, in 2005, 2006, that was like, I guess this was even, yeah, 2004, 2005, that was like a, 
that was an insane idea. And so I actually started bringing together a bunch of people. We said, why don't we host a gathering on what it would look like to have a billion dollars in microfinance? And so Criterion brought together, but it ended up being like Wayne Silby and like um, Bob Petillo and all of these amazing players. I connected to Tim at that time and it was just the ability to ask a bold question and then convene people around it. And, and it was a couple of years, it was at, at the follow-up from that gathering where like, why aren't people just moving this forward? You know, Axio and Grameen had joined the gathering and long story, but it was, you looked at, there was a talent gap at that time. There were a bunch of hard questions being asked and people beginning to design some really interesting alternatives. But anyway, so Tim and, and Kevin were thinking about doing something. I joined them and we founded Good Capital and that gave me a, a kind of catbird seat to look at the development of the field of gender lens investing, impact investing broadly, and then eventually spur off this gender lens investing thing. And yeah, so to talk a little bit about that. Like, what were you doing in the early days at Good Capital? What types of things were you investing in? When did the gender lens focus really? Because Good Capital was broader than just gender investing, well, right? Good it was... Capital had, had no gender focus. We actually invested okay. in, 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 yeah, we invested. We ended up doubling down in fair trade. And so part of the reasons I exited Good Capital is because I, I did want to work more on issues of power and gender and at the time. Good Capital wasn't the right platform to do that through. And so that's part of the reasons that I left. But Tim and Kevin have gone on to do amazing things on all kinds of fronts. So, yeah. So, so what types of things while you, were, while you were there at Good Capital were you, were you, were you working on? Okay, this was early days. <laughs> so yeah. nobody yeah, had it's... focus. Like I often note that our, our focus in Good Capital was, we, we actually interestingly started with six or seven ideas and starting a venture fund, the Social Enterprise Expansion Fund, which was the fund we actually launched, was on a list of 10 things. And it just happened to be that we got funding for that and it seemed like it would work, but we had other ideas. And so we early on were also really focused in saying that we were about building a field, not just moving a bunch of capital. So others replicated there were other firms starting at the same time that scaled faster. We were a little more artisanal. We ended up investing in five companies. Fair trade was the dominant piece. Hmm. Yeah, feels like a long time ago. What was? Yeah, it's been like. Yeah, it was, it was good though. But the path to gender lens investing was actually, I, I remember Calvert Foundation was a, a significant partner in Good Capital because that's where Kevin or where, where Tim worked. And I remember walking through SoCap, one of the first or second SoCaps or something, with Shari Barenbach, who led Calvert at the time. Amazing woman. Really a loss for the field when she died. But walking through SoCap with Shari Barenbach and, and just realizing that one more time we were having a conversation about reinventing finance, but not looking really deeply at questions of power. They're just not really questioning the underlying assumptions, not assuming that the people in power understood how it worked. 
And I remember a couple of years ago being on the stage, on the main stage in SOCAP with John Fullerton, who I have enormous respect for in terms of what he's built within the field of impact investing. But I remember looking to him on the stage saying, just because you found new math, you don't get to run it again. <laughs> and he had been the managing director of JP Morgan or something. And so that kind of sense of we're not really questioning the power dynamics in all in how all of this is working. And we really weren't, right? There there really was this sense. I remember being at an early meeting for I think it was SOCAP, sort of design of SOCAP. And I was like nobody noticed I was the only woman in the room. And there was a guy on a speakerphone who I still to this day don't know who he was, but he was on the speakerphone and he started saying, I was at the Council of Foundations and the women who run these foundations, they don't really understand about capital. And so I thought I'd use the metaphor of a layer cake just to break it down for them in language they could understand. Oh, man. and I remember looking at, I think, Aunt, you know, Andrew Casoy was sitting next to me or somebody. And I was like, is nobody noticing the tenor of this conversation? There was just a, a kind of obliviousness, the sort of, we are smart. We know finance. So many people who come out of the dot-com phase and ergo, we must be able to create social change and these that, that just embedded arrogance. So for me, gender lens investing, when we first started, wasn't really about women. It was about power. And my ongoing hope is that we continue to get back to that and that the field of gender lens investing could hopefully be more intersectional and, 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 and about gender as one aspect with race and class and all kinds of other things that we look at in how we look at power. Because it's... And I remember walking on that stage back to where you and I last saw each other when I got up at the end of that. Remember that first day when we were at that conference and it had been a parade of finance people explaining. I think it was just for civil society organizations. It had been a parade of finance people explaining finance to civil society people. And I got at the end, I was the last person to speak. And that was like, it looked that I just remember looking out at the audience and thinking you guys have been, they just look like somebody had trampled them or something. I got up and I was just like, look, this isn't about money. Like you hear $20 million. That's, that's not meaningful that it's $20 million. Cause frankly, $20 million isn't a lot of money in finance. You hear $20 million and it sounds like a big grant, but it isn't, it's not about money. It's about power. And mm-hmm. If we don't understand that finance is about power, then, you know, we'll continue to think the point I was going to make early on is one of the problems we have when we have people who work in finance who come into social change is moving money becomes the point. So much about impact investing and sustainable finances is measured by how much money we've moved. And like that just really doesn't take into account how much money is, is not good. Like it's not mm. all loans are good things. Like 
certainly not all equity is good. Like moving money in and of itself is not a good thing. Moving money appropriately to things that can create social good can be good in the right context. But but we measure it on its own terms and what's seen as successful in finance becomes what's successful in social change. Anyway. Yeah, I... It's one of my biggest worries about the impact investment field is that it's going to get overrun with traditional finance. And we're already starting to see you know, there isn't, is there a large investment house in that doesn't have an impact investing group anymore? And that's fine if they, if for traditional finance folks to get involved, but if it happens the way they traditionally tackle the problems, it's going to just be full of the same types of people with the same types of mindsets. And you're right, like the point's going to be like about moving money and, and they're just going to kind of ruin it. And and I, I come back to, I think, the, the much harder part of the equation in impact investing, if it's a blend of, if you think about it as the merging of the finance or investment world with the kind of social impact world, the social impact stuff is just a lot harder. With finance and investments, you have, especially when we're talking about in developing world contexts, not to say that they're you know not really bright people who've done amazing work. They're definitely have like some the field's loaded with it, but it's still just it's a lot easier. You've got mountains worth of historical data. You've got you're operating. You've got money and resources behind you to do the research. You have teams of people. You like it's just you've got all the environment set up for success. And the social impact side is dealing with things that are just inherently more complicated because it's people. And you often are doing it in context where you don't have proper funding. You don't have, you're doing it in unstable environments. If it's a developing world context, like there's just so many additional factors that create a lot of, that make it just more difficult. And so anyway, I, would, I do worry about the field of impact investing getting getting ruined by traditional finance people who don't really care about the impact. They just, yeah. this is a fun new challenge and it makes them feel good. So Oh, challenging that as I want to do. I don't think it ruins it. Like I, I think so. Here's my playback on that. It's about strategy, right? So, what is the strategy for social change? And there are times, like right now, we're working on a project that's around political risk and the correlations between increased political risk in investments and the rates of gender-based violence at a country level and broadly women, peace, and security. And there's an amazing correlation, just totally amazing, not in a good way, but amazing in a, a bad way of sort of gender-based violence goes up, political risk goes up fairly substantially, national security kind of political risk. Anyway. Just globally, Joy, or just within the U.S.? Globally, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so if you take that, it's literally a data point that could be inserted into an ESG framework. And so from mm -hmm. my perspective, we are actually totally going in a mainstream perspective. This, the theory of change is that like women on boards, if we added another data point to ESG analytics, particularly one in this case focused on market risk and seeing gender as a pattern in the world, not just patterning companies and all kinds of rationale behind that why this data point besides the fact that it's got bloody glorious data behind it. But in this case, we're looking at the huge ESG firms and 
being a data point in political risk is an important criteria, certainly not the most sexy defining criteria of investments, but a part of the infrastructure. And so our theory of change is that if gender-based violence is seen as valuable, is a valuable data set with to, to be able to determine long-term political risk, country-level risk, we can influence things like infrastructure, long-term trends in, in, in weighting of sectors or industries and by geography, that our point has not been that we've that's a very specific strategy to say, if gender-based violence matters in that setting, then gender-based violence increases its relevance in the world. Mm-hmm. And so just for example, right now, the World Bank's data on violence doesn't actually include gender-based violence. That's a pretty remarkable statement of mm-hmm. how we see violence in the world and what and how we understand it. So that gender-based violence is not worth counting is a pressure point to say, get it counted. And so that's not a, it's a fairly mechanical form of social change, but it's also very much working within mainstream assumptions. And so we're doing that at the same time that we're launching a trade finance vehicle in the Pacific that like all told might take in half a million dollars of investment over its lifetime but it's really deep change for a small set of entrepreneurs, a small set of producers and a new design of a trade finance vehicle. Like both are true. And I think part of, part of what we don't do enough of in, in this whole realm is say, what is actually the change that we're trying to create? What part of finance might be useful to do that could finance be a helpful tool for social change? Or frankly, is it irrelevant and we should just use policy or media or whatever? But what happened so much in impact investing is we got driven by the needs of intermediaries, right? And I don't think that's inherently a bad thing, right? Financial intermediaries need to get paid and they need to build new funds. But we start with, here's the kind of capital we know how to deploy. And then we go into the world and say, who needs our kind of capital or how do we fix that company so that they can take our kind of capital versus starting by saying, what's the problem we're trying to solve and what kind of capital or what system, what part of the system of of finance would actually be useful. And I think we need to be, and this is our particular advice for governments and, and philanthropists and others, where if you start in a perspective where you're not a financial intermediary managing a set of money, you have a perspective where you can say, what is the right kinds of money? What is the right kind of capital? What are the right terms? What are the right structures? How, how do we answer that question first before we start by saying venture capital is God's gift to humanity and let's figure out how to scale venture capital, which is a, is a, is a, is a dubious goal. Like, why do we want to scale venture capital? Like, it's the most overpriced form of capital on the planet. I don't know. Maybe we should be trying to scale it, but it's seen as a privileged form of capital and it's what we know and it's what so much of impact investing got built around. And so how much cap venture capital people take on becomes this sort of defining part of the system versus starting by can finance be useful? If so, what kind of finance would be useful? 
And I, but I guess that's my point, right? Like, I don't think that is the natural, the default position for most, most purveyors of, of cap, you know, most in the capital markets, right? To start with, what is the change that we're trying to seek? And then how do we kind of source and structure the capital in a way that is well suited to deliver that change? I think the default is here's what, here's, we want to move this capital. We want to charge these fees and we need to do it profitably. And how do we, how do we move that? So I, I think you're, I think you're to try to change from whatever this is worth and you don't need my opinion. It makes sense to me to try to change that. I think that's, there's like, I'm optimistic. I think that's really fruitful, fruitful work. But if we don't work hard to do that, I think you can get a lot of traditional firms entering the impact investing space, calling it impact investing, moving a bunch of money around. And meanwhile, we haven't really moved the needle. Nothing's changed. Power trucks, power structures are the same. Systemic inequities exist and continue to remain. So I just, I worry unless there, again, unless there's a lot of work done by groups like yours and, and pioneers in this space where I think we, unless we actively like work towards that. I don't think that would naturally happen if, if I could put it that way. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, like piece, I, the piece that I push back on is, so I, I agree with all of that. I, I think the, the piece that I am also cautious of in the impact investing world is a kind of, I don't want to be too harsh, but we end up saying, I've built this fund. I should get to deploy it. I don't have enough money to deploy it. I need more TA to get the businesses ready to take my capital. And so often in impact investing, we do end up fixated on the type of capital we have because we haven't been able to diversify. And so for smaller firms, I think we end up appropriately specializing but without a whole lot of space for innovation because they're, as you said before, often underfunded. And I just want us to be cautious about that, right? Raising the question to say, how do we, how do we make sure that everybody can keep asking the right questions and we're not immune to getting stuck in ruts in social finance as much as we're also not immune to getting stuck in ruts in for social finance. I guess that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I- I also think one of my experiences with in World Vision and kind of working in that type of context with bringing social finance to that space is just there's just different languages, different ways of thinking and addressing problems, different ways of working. And there's you're bringing people together who haven't typically worked together to solve these challenges like the investment world and the kind of social impact world. And the you're forging, I'd like to describe it as like forging these synapses mm-hmm. where we're learning how to, and I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. So it's having a healthy dose of skepticism and challenging, but also having a healthy dose of respect for what the other side yeah. brings to the table, I think is probably where we want to land. I would say just building on that thread, we've got a huge focus this year and moving forward to say, we need to be building more translators. We need to particularly in, in the gender space, there just aren't enough. I think we've I think we've tackled some of this in the environmental space where you have MBAs where you can go and get a joint degree in climate and finance. And that's seen as 
peanut butter and chocolate or something. They go together well. But there isn't a single university on the planet that has a joint degree with gender and finance. There are schools that have a focus in, in, in sort of gender finance or gender lens investing, but in general, they don't partner with the, with the gender programs. That's a great point. How do we build that? And you, I'm sure you've seen this in, in World Vision. We see it a lot in donor agencies. The gender branch does not talk to the innovative finance branch. And how do we get those folks talking to each other respectfully? Not you're the people trying to keep us from doing this quickly and stifling innovation, or you're the people who are neoliberal apologists for capitalism. There are amazing insults that fly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's part of what the mission of the podcast is, is try to like just introduce more people into the conversation, remove some of those, like the jargon, mm-hmm. make it feel more accessible to people because we need and want more people coming to this table to bring diverse perspectives. On that note, there's a whole bunch of questions I'd love to ask you. And I know you've got some time constraints here. I'd love to like you in the social the toolkit that I was mentioning earlier in the conversation, there were some really great, it's a whole set of cards, right? And it basically is meant to empower people who maybe don't have a kind of a finance background, or even if they do, as how to use finance for social change. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all these definitions of like common investment terms, which is really cool. You had a bunch of like cards that talking about definitions of privilege and intersectionality structural inequities, which again, I love because you hear these terms thrown around and unless you stop to really think about them, I think there's probably a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about what these things are. It seems that's a big part of the mission at Criterion as well is to welcome people into this conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Toolkit was designed as a leveling device in whether it's sessions where we're designing new things or frankly just offering a training to people to invite them into this and interestingly it works both for social change players but also for finance folks who forget who've gotten stuck in their own tool and forgot Mm -hmm. what the other ones were or haven't reached out to say the list of institutions like how many of those institutions are you partnering with or are you just stuck in a rut And, and um happy to have a link to this, but we've actually put the whole thing online now. So, uh, Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll link to it in the show notes so people can find it. Yeah, so it's just on our site. And it's not as good as the cards yet, but it, it'll get there. And yeah, just... I mean, and part of it was also the reason we work with cards, because we lots of times we create cards, because they're... The difference between learning by taking a card or a component and kind of breaking it apart versus case studies is often case studies say, here is how this works. And here are the people who have done it. And then the question is, can you also do this? And so I think about something like social impact bonds, right? Which became, or development impact bonds or whatever. And they became really well-published case studies about here's how this worked. And then a whole bunch of people asked the question, could that work 
where I live. And in some ways, as I think you've probably seen, since that's an area that you focus in, it got oversimplified to be about the case studies versus the really complicated components that make it work. And so being able to take apart the components and say, look, you have a term and you have an interest rate and you have some kind of a security and how this all fits together could be put together in a bunch of different ways. But let's think about what the components are and how they fit together versus these kind of composites that often are designed for a particular context and maybe not scalable to other contexts. So that's why we often teach and design by sort of breaking things into their component parts and taking them apart, blowing them up, so to speak, and so that we can put them back together in different ways. Yeah, I love it. There, the, to the point you were making previously too, like for it being for you know traditional finance folks too, or reminders. There's a set of social change asset cards which I loved, which was just a, a series of cards reminding people all of the, kind of a variety of the ways in which they have the ability to you know, have an impact, either because they you know sit in control of how a foundation invests its assets, or they're responsible for an organizational decisions, or what types of data you know get used to make decisions, or they have influence over other people. And so it's just this really great reminder. It's like, oh, I, here are all these ways I can actually <laughs> right. make a difference. And so it's to, really great. Yeah, to plug another piece, those are actually really well, more better, more better. Those are more better played. Those are <laughs> more effectively even played out within our blueprints and that that really play out. We have a blueprint for women's funds, grassroots organizations, a blueprint for international NGOs, and now a blueprint for faith-based organizations that really start with, here are the assets that these kinds of organizations tend to have and how they translate to systems of finance. Yeah, so that's great. I'll um, make sure to link also in the show notes to the blueprints. I, I was just noticing as we you know were chatting here, one of the blueprints is that you have, you, as you mentioned, you've got them for a variety of different environments. One is for blueprint for INGOs, and I, I noticed it was co-written by Mara Bolas, who's who's wonderful. I had I had bumped into heard her speak, and then had a chance to chat with her after at the Social Finance Forum in Toronto maybe in 2018, I remember th- hearing your talk at a lot of the challenges that IAGOs face in social finance. And I was just like, oh, yes, thank you. This is exactly what I'm experiencing. And she was just so good about sharing her experiences and just even just having that somebody r- recognize, oh, it's not just you. This right. is an issue with this. And I, cause I, I was new to it and I walked in was, I would say blindsided. I, naive about it as I went into that space. Gotta love Mara. Yeah, yeah. She's wonderful. So I'd love to join, like you've got, there's a few, I don't want to make this too one-on-one, but I also like to make sure we, as you try to do at the Criterion Institute, welcome people into the conversation. There, there are some really great definitions of terms and, you know, I'm not going to go through all the, obviously the cards in, in your toolkit, but I'd love to like single out a few terms and just have you explain them in your own words, and then maybe talk a little bit, just add a little extra color context application of them. Does that work? Sure. Cool. So 
privilege is, is a term, you know, we're hearing a lot more about these days. I think most people have some idea about it. How do you define privilege? Okay, well, you're looking at the card and I'm not. Let me see if I can actually. You don't have to. Re- re- I don't need the, what did it say on the card? But how do you think about it? Even just in your own words. Privilege is all of the ways in which something is assumed to be valuable without, because of the sort of structural inequalities in the world or because of, essentially because of bias. So I I think about venture capital a lot as one of, as a privileged asset Mm. class. Uh, And venture capital is remarkably gendered male. And we could say that it's neutral, right? That it's just a financial vehicle. But if you think Mm -hmm. about it, like it's gendered male. It's predominantly run by men, predominantly provided to men. And and some of the characteristics that is described are gendered masculine, right? And it's Mm -hmm. not that it's not that that women shouldn't get venture capital, don't get venture capital, don't have the same characteristics that are within venture capital. But it also helps me to understand like why it disproportionately is valuable beyond actually any of the objective measures of it. I mentioned this before, but venture capital is one of the most expensive forms of of capital for entrepreneurs and potentially the most expensive. I haven't looked at the numbers recently and they haven't hit their own benchmarks. Like they don't hit their own sort of performance goals in terms of returns. And so expensive for entrepreneurs and don't hit their own perform their own sort of performance goals. And yet what we do is we're like, you know what, this is the most like literally unreasonable institute who I love, but unreasonable institute at some point you couldn't get access to being an entrepreneur within the unreasonable institutes program if you weren't seeking venture capital. Hmm. And so it becomes this kind of mark of a good company that you've gotten venture capital. That's just weird. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would we think companies that had gotten venture capital were stronger, better, faster, smarter, whatever it is we're looking for? It's those moments when, whether this is about gender or about race or about you know, ability, all these sort of different religion, all these different pieces where we start to assume that something is better, not based on any formal measures but because those measures are bound up in all of our other biases and assumptions. Anyway, that was a long answer, but venture capital, just like for me, like when we spend so much time, I, I, this is my, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably too loud about this. And, but we spend so much time trying to get women entrepreneurs access to venture capital. And I don't want anybody denied access to something, but it's not great money. And so right. like, why have we, why is it considered a failure that women don't get enough of it? Why don't we say, actually, there's a whole bunch of really dumb men out there who've taken too much venture capital and lost their businesses. Man, yeah, maybe we should create right. clinics for people to not need venture capital anymore and take more reasonable forms of debt. 
Right. Like, why don't we have it'd be a little bit like programs? It'd be a little bit like, oh, women don't have the equal access to cigarettes. It's like, okay, we, they should, but also don't smoke. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, 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 yes, it's not like it, it's. A, I know it's not matter, that. Right? It's not as terrible to smoking, but. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, that's maybe an unfair. We don't think. But, if you take cigarettes back in the day when there was the Marlboro Man, and Marlboro right. Man was the like the epitome of masculinity, and so for somebody to smoke because it reflected the sort of gender norm, that's when we start to get crazy. I'm fine if you smoke because frankly it just helps you relax or whatever, but if you sure. smoke because you think it will fulfill some gender norm, and then women can't smoke because that also doesn't fulfill a gender norm, we literally do the same thing around capital. Right. That's yeah. My yeah, I, I think that, that's like, really that interesting. So far from the 101, David, my apologies, but yeah. No, I love it. No, that's great. No, that's great. I, I love it because it. I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it, and I do think it's important that you know, I don't think women should be excluded from from something. But the, you're raising just a broader point: is that let's not all get all venture capital crazy. There are other forms of capital, and some may be much more healthy for you right. to finance your organization. (laughs) Um, Normal growth businesses are more stable and they have absolutely no use for venture capital. What do you, I've heard this definition as succinct for privilege is just like some sort of unearned advantage that you have. And oftentimes because it was unearned, you're just unaware that you even, that it isn't even an advantage or an ability or an advantage that you have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think okay, the thing so, that then leads into this sort of idea of a structural inequity is when right. those privileges get so baked into the system that they're just, quote unquote, how things work. So unreasonable institute then not allowing people to be in an accelerator unless they're looking, unless they have access, unless they're seeking venture capital takes a kind of privilege and then makes it a structural exclusion. Inequity, yeah, that was that's a great segue because that was the next term on my list. So, right when these things become ingrained in your rules and procedures, laws that's codified, then now we're talking about structural inequities because it's not even now just oh, if this person leaves, it's just this this is a bias of this decision maker who happens to be working in this organization at this period of time. It's now just the way things are done. And do you would you think do you think those things are harder? particularly challenging then to to change and to turn over? Like, how do you um, dismantle those? Sometimes they're harder. Sometimes they're... I find changing how people think is one of the hardest things. So I like finding structural inequities because then I'm addressing a structure, not mm. a feeling or an intent. And like one of... You said before, do people... you you like one of the core definitions of impact investing is that it's people's intent. I'm, I don't want it to rely on people's intent. I want it to be baked into the system. So I want to actually work more. We work a lot. A lot of the, a lot of the approaches that we take to using finance as a tool for social change is to the two people, the two things that most people do, the two strategies that most people use is they point money at, at enterprises that will create a social good 
or they measure the outcomes of how money is being spent and hold people accountable for the outcomes. For us, we focus more on how value is assigned, how structures, how structures are used to manage power dynamics, and then how we think about what processes are valid. So it's in the mechanics of finance that I actually think things get interesting because it lets you change how it works, not change how people, what people want, like how they want to use it, like changing actually structurally how something works. Back to the political risk example, if gender-based violence gets baked in to how we think about political risk in the world, Mm -hmm. that is a permanent change, right? Right. It's it's a much more, I mean, not permanent, it's much more durable change than a private investor choosing to create a fund around political risk and the next year choosing to do something different. But rather, if you change the underlying spreadsheets in finance, and add new elements. This is what I think is so important about ESG. If you add new elements to how finance, if you change how value is calculated, not what is valued, but literally what are the calculations that lead to the assigning of value, you have a different kind of durability of change than individual preferences. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really interesting. I feel like with a lot of the stuff, it's like both and let's, there's lots of ways in which we can change yeah. Yeah, the world absolutely. and let's do all of those things. But this is the thing that I don't, this is a, you're making a point that I don't hear brought up a lot, which I, which I like that idea of to, to the extent that there are things like, I'm struggling to find my words, but I think what you're saying is like if, let's not base it on the, what's in vogue and what people are happen to be wanting to do it at any particular moment when we're changing the underlying structure of how things get financed, how things get valued and make it in a way that's consistent with the existing, within the existing framework that has so much uh, power because it's, it, you're showing them how it's in their best interest to incorporate right. this stuff within their existing framework. So it's easier for them to adopt. It's e- Now I don't, there's certain changes that probably can't get adopted that way because it doesn't fit within their framework, but the ones that do exist, Let's take those wins. Yeah, I love that. That's really well said because I think it's a both and. And I think anybody who's trying to create social change, I'll give them props. Go for it. Mm -hmm. It's hard. So like try all the, like all the toys, all the approaches. Like I just happen to want to expand what toys we use. And we got a little too focused in my mind as the only way we create change is by finding a scalable social entrepreneur that we will finance them and then they will ride out into the distance and create a whole brave new world with our capital. And that happens. It's not, it doesn't happen as consistently as I would like. And and so I want to have more toys and let's still do that when that's the right thing to do, but then let's try some other things. Right. I love that. So there's two more terms I wanted to get to. One was, and building off of the conversation about structural inequities, how does, how do you view sy- systemic oppression kind of in, re- in particular, like how do you, f- you see that differing from structural inequities? Yeah. I, th- I think the, 
Structural inequities is a very sort of specific term that looks at how things are baked into how systems work. Systemic mm -hmm. oppression, which also has the word systems in it, is I think, honestly, we don't talk about systemic oppression enough in finance and in, in impact investing in general. There's a kind of sense of, well, I don't want to say we tip a little bit too neoliberal, but there's a kind of sense of positivism, right, that we can change things and they're not really it can't suck that much for people. They have a choice and they can purchase different activities or all of this just really naming, we're working on a project right now around, for the next couple of years, we're working on solid waste management and, and looking at trash collecting waste makers. Mm -hmm. And part of the conversation we keep having is, sure, we could maybe finance some innovations in waste picking that would marginally improve, that would marginally improve the experience of largely women who are stuck in those roles. But we're not really going to address the systemic oppression that because of norms and gender norms is a nice way to talk about it. Misogyny and other pieces are, are less good way to talk about it or less um, polite way to talk about it. But the basic thing is that the whole thing's rigged and I realize it still is, it, it's a kind of, if we fix something for the waste pickers and move a set of women into aquaculture, I am just cynical enough or realistic enough to say it's about the gender norms about those women, not just how that supply chain worked. So you put women of a lower caste in India in a new industry, we will find a way to devalue that industry and make it more exploitative. And so mm. I think part of this is the the kind of women's economic empowerment and let's figure out ways to you know, help people get ahead. At some point, we have to have an honest look about the fact that, that the gender norms and questions of, of misogyny and systems of oppression are, are not are not going to just disappear because we finance some women entrepreneurs. Like it, it's just it's a little too deep. Yeah, it feels to me like structural inequities. There's more room for that to be. It has a tone and a tenor of, oh, these things got baked in and it wasn't intentional. It's often subconsciously. Whereas systemic oppression yeah. feels very much, oh, this is an active choice, and 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 you're, there's blame being assigned. And it, it is oppression. I don't know if it's blame to individuals, but there are groups that are oppressed, and it's not that they fail to get ahead or just haven't been empowered. Like they're actually oppressed. It's the action right. of oppression that I think we sometimes forget about in our effort to give people a leg up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think about I, I don't, gun violence to, to sort of violence against black men in particular in the United States 
like th that is it is a form of systemic oppression right it is the intent is to make sure that people stay in a place that is not where they belong it's a, it's an it's a kind of it's ongoing and it's active rather than oh these sort of inequities got built in and over time it just it, it just yeah it, it feels to me like one you have to and if even if you're not as an individual responsible for it you can you're probably complicit in it if you are you yeah. know not working to address it and solve it and it's the primary reason that the the, the ability to look at the, sort of these deeper cultural pieces is why we chose to work on gender-based violence because mm. so much of what we're addressing in gender wasn't getting in gender lens investing it was largely about women in leadership positions. It was economic empowerment. It wasn't like one in three women experience intimate partner sexual violence in their lifetimes. That's just a mind numbing statistic. Yeah. That's just, it's at a, and we've created all kinds of systems to one of my, one of the things we talk about all the time is with the cost of gender-based violence to companies and to economies. And there's really real statistics about what does it cost that sexual harassment happens in a company or that people who are experiencing domestic violence don't have a safe place at their workplace and a significant part of, of violence in the workplace is actually domestic violence that spills into the workplace from the home. So all of that is, you can calculate an enormous cost to business. That much violence is happening against workers. But <laughs> a friend of mine said recently, another way to look at that cost is what we're willing to pay to keep these systems in place. Like, yeah. To not have to address gender-based violence, to not have to consider it, think about it, change the cultural norms around it, we are willing to pay an enormous amount of money. That's and pretty, just that's facing a that. Profound way of framing that. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, and so coming back to privilege is a great example of how that kind of like men have this sense of this privilege in this regard that not to say that there aren't men who are ever victims of gender-based violence, but it's happens at a inordinate ratio the other way. And men have that privilege. Right. The other term I want to call out is coming back to this idea of gender norms. And yeah. because for us, what we at Criterion, what we focus on a lot of our time is actually creating a picture of the future. And what gender equality and, and racial inequity, what we lack is a picture of the future as if all of the social movements and advocacy, what if it all worked? What is what, what finance is fundamentally about, and I think we forget this too often. Finance is fundamentally about a bet about a future, right? Nobody makes money in the present, you only make money in the future. And what we're doing is not betting on today, we're betting on a future. And, and climate finance did a really good job of putting an OSHA date out there and sort of saying, 
here's this. And if you avoid it, you're going to win in that future. And if you're not going to avoid it, um, then you'll lose in that future. And I don't know, I, I suppose we shouldn't have winners or losers, but it, at some point, I don't screw it. I think Vicki Saunders is always telling me, Joy, we don't have winners or losers. Like, Damn it, Vicky, I want there to be losers. But <laughs> I will say there is, I remember sitting next to, this is such a weird story to bring up, but I was sitting next to this guy on an airplane. Remember when we used to sit on airplanes and he was in the middle seat and was talking to this guy next to him in the most, oh, about women that he had picked up and that they were asking for it. He just went on and on. And I sat on the window seat thinking I will never sit in a window seat again to feel trapped right next to this. But I also kept thinking there is a future in which you lose, in which all of this work that we're doing does change attitudes about race, attitudes about gender, who loses in the system. It changes the power dynamics. And I Like, I am a profoundly hopeful person. Like, I do believe that there is something underlying all of this that that will change. And so what I want to help investors do is say, okay, imagine a future 15, 10 years out. We know that norms change. We know that how people um, see gender and race and, and other issues in the world has changed. Lots has changed. Not done, but has changed. And so if you project out 10 years, like nobody saw Black Lives Matter coming. Nobody saw Me Too coming. And they're like, oh my gosh, social movements that are making things seem as fundamentally unacceptable that we thought everybody just tolerated. We thought that we didn't mind how many Black men we killed and Black women we killed in the United States. We just thought everybody put up with it. There was always a social movement fighting against that. And so it just raised its visibility. And same with Me Too. Nobody changed anything about policies, about sexual harassment in any company. It was literally a tipping point in a long-term movement that said, hey, it's not okay for you to beat the crap out of women at work. And so... What I want to do is keep saying, what are those other moments where we're expecting cultural shifts to happen? And how do we invest with an awareness of those cultural shifts? Because what moves social inequities, cultural inequities, structural inequities, what, what moves them from a chronic risk of, sorry, must suck to be like to, to live with so much fear and to be so exploited. We're really sorry. That must suck. But I can't, everybody, you know, like everybody's gotten the same situation. So I can't differentiate which investment is going to win in that situation. Unless you say it's changing. And what is the future that we're actually investing in? And in that future, there'll be something different. And are you betting on the right future? Are you betting as if the guy next to me in this airplane is going to get to talk trash his whole life? Or are we betting that at some point it's going to change? And then how do we look at our investments and say, are we betting on the winners who are actually win, win the arc of history tips towards justice? Because it just has to, Dave. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I love that. I love that. That's really, where do you think we are 
on the progress on the journey towards some sort of we're never going to reach utopia but towards a much more gender equal world i don't know what do you think the u.s is oh the united states oh that's a scary idea i i think at some point like it's i don't know if it's, there's a linear progression but i right, do know right. that what we're in the middle of is a pretty extensive backlash and so to be able to read cultural changes you have to read the difference between what's the backlash to a change. And so I believe that the crap around Trump right now is in part a, and I'm not alone in this, a significant backlash against shifts that were destabilizing the privilege for, in the US, particularly working class white men. And the, the, that's what we destabilized. And so you can read it as it was horrible. It is horrible. The things that have happened in the last four years are not good for anybody in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of good things happened along the way and movements got solidified and clarified. And the, the sort of the risks of, this kind of toxic, sort of toxic hatred, the risk that has in our culture became more clear. So nobody should ever go through 2020 again. <laughs> Let's not do it again. But, 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 I think we're in the the midst, at least in the U.S., of a pretty significant backlash, and backlashes are a sign that we threaten something. Interesting. Yeah. A couple more questions before I, before I let you go. Do you, how do you think the, I want to bring in the recognize that when we talk about gender equality, it's not just about women. It's about people of, you know, diverse gender identities. Do you like, how do you view that? Do you see, like, it feels to me like a lot of the conversation around gender equality talks specifically about women and girls which is wonderful. I think increasingly the conversation seems to be recognizing that there are people of you know various gender identities which are marginalized and oppressed and suffer the, you know, the same or if not worse oppression and inequities. How do you see that as, do you see that as a, a separate field that needs to be addressed in and of its own right or as part of the same kind of movement? separate and together. So our specific yeah. strategy on that is exactly what you just named, which is, I love how I just keep canceling things and we're going to keep talking. Eventually we're going to end this conversation. So sorry. For I the know. Things going I, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think the uh, one is, I think we do need a, whether it's queer lens investing or investing with an LGBTIQ lens or whatever it gets framed as, I think we need to bring together investors and asset holders in general for whom that matters and that they can use their power to push on those questions. Because if we don't have an organized push around that, we won't make the shifts we need to. Where Criterion focuses, because it's where we have more influence, is to make sure that the field of gender lens investing is less binary because in the end, keeping the field as binary and overly simplistic as it is right now is 
going to make the analysis inaccurate, our pictures of the future wrong, our understanding of gender wrong, like the sophistication of the analysis of how gender operates in the world across most parts of gender lens investing are, are wire, wildly overly oversimplified. And I think that is about intersectionality in general. I think we do that around race. We do that around class or caste. What I love about 2000, very few things that I love about 2020, but one of the things I love about 2020 is the shit's complicated and we actually can't simplify gender. Like there are still a lot of people who say, you know what though, Joy, let's just have, we won our tick box to say that we can count how many women are here. And I, I know that's a win, but at some point we just have to acknowledge that counting how many women are in a room is really not an accurate measure of much of anything. And so it's an important human rights move to make sure that we're counting, because if you don't count, you don't notice. But on the flip side, simply overly binary counting of how many men and how many women is just not is just not helpful. Yeah, like <laughs> on the one hand, it's progress and let's not diminish it. On the other hand, if yeah, I think about the the gender ETFs and you know the, the first one that came out there, I can't remember the ticker, but if you were going to design, if you were going to say, what's the way we could create a product that does, that's the simplest, easiest, that doesn't really actually change much, but we can still claim it to be a gender equality ETF. Counting the number of women on the board seems like the least thing you could possibly do and still call it a gender ETF. Remarkably, a lot of people do. And it's, it's a matter of, of how far we've gotten in the field right now. And yeah. A lot of this is about resourcing, right? We just, if you compare how much money has been spent on gender lens investing to how much money has been spent on climate finance, it becomes pretty clear why there's better statistics, why there's better analysis in climate finance. We just, it's, it's the investment in complex analytics that allows us to feed up into systems of finance is what's needed. And again, back to the translator's point we made earlier, there's a lot of really good data out there around gender. It just sits in NGOs and in research organizations that don't know how to translate the data sets that they have to systems and finance in such a way they can be influential. Just to wrap up here, what do you, or is there anything you're working on right now? Or do you have an outlook for anything that you're kind of most excited about or maybe most worried about looking forward? Yeah, I'm really, I don't know, I'm really stoked about the work that Criterion's doing right now. I think we're in, we just came out with this end of year newsletter that I kept pausing when I looked at this. Collectively, we're unstoppable. I'm like, really, is that just a spin? Or I don't know. I feel like there's some parts of these movements that really are unstoppable right now. There's a lot of momentum and smart strategies being put in place and yeah Op i'm optimistic because there's hard work that's getting organized and where i get often most discouraged is when this is my sort of endless problem of just give me the simple action that i can take that will mm -hmm. end structural oppression 
just with $5 million, how do I spend that to make a difference? I'm like, really? Well, how about we <laughs> step back a minute, look at the complexity right. of the problem. Right. But on the other hand, it does, the only way you make a difference is by, I don't know, I love that in July, a set of materials were shipped from China to the Pacific that were financed by this little menstrual health vehicle that, that, that we got started this year, or that we actually might take this one data point around political risk and add it to a bunch of ESG measures this year. Like it's those really tangible, specific, tactical wins that I get excited about. And I think we're making more of those as there's a broader set of power behind us. So awesome. I love it. Listen, Joy, I won't take any more of your day. You've been very gracious with your your time and thoughts and, and feedback and all that. So thank you. I'd love to have you on again down the road. I'm going to link to all the stuff we talked about in the podcast or show notes if people want to find Criterion Institute. And yeah, thank you. Oh, absolutely, David. A pleasure to talk to you as always. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.